Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at, well, it really depends where you come from, because this film actually has two different names. If you're from America, this film is called Ancient Evil, Scream of the Mummy, a name which admittedly is quite overly dramatic, but I kind of get what they were doing, you know, this is quite clearly a B-movie and it's leaning into that, and I could see there definitely being an audience for that. However, if you come from the UK... This film has the fantastically terrible name of Bram Stoker's The Legend of the Mummy 2. You can probably instantly see an issue with this. Fair enough, Bram Stoker wrote Jewel of the Seven Stars, which was a mummy story, but he certainly never wrote a sequel for this. On top of that, right, I've previously reviewed on this podcast Bram Stoker's Legend of the Mummy. This was a film that was based on Jewel of the Seven Stars, so that kind of makes sense. This film... Bram Stoker's The Legend of the Mummy 2 has nothing to do with the first one. They are not linked at all. The only reason that this film was named that was so that they could be bundled together in like a kind of package. So just no matter what way you look at that, Bram Stoker's The Legend of the Mummy 2 is a terrible name. But by the same token, I actually own this film. I have it on DVD. I got it many years ago from a charity shop. If this film had been called Ancient Evil, Scream of the Mummy, I probably wouldn't have given it a second glance. It would have just kind of blended in with all of the other B-movies. But because it had such a fantastically terrible name, I just had to own it. I had to see what this film was. So in a kind of roundabout way, the name kind of at least makes it stand out. Or, you know, at least it did for me. Another interesting fact about this film is that very, very briefly, it was the lowest rated film on IMDb. It isn't anymore, I don't think it's even in the top 10, but the fact that it got there at all is kind of impressive. And whenever I see something like that, I get like this weird excitement when I start to watch the film. I just want to see how something can possibly be that bad. <laughs> because ultimately, even really bad films like the awful awful films tend to come back on themselves you know they they get to a point where they're so bad that they just become entertaining and then their rating goes up so to be that low down is just kind of weirdly insanely impressive anyway uh in terms of the format for this episode we shall start by looking at the historical accuracy and i probably should stress that the mummy in this one isn't ancient egyptian uh they come from the aztec culture so so mexico 
this is not my area of expertise. Don't get me wrong, I have tried really hard here. I've done a lot of research, but I, I haven't done a couple of degrees in the subject like I have for ancient Egypt. So take what I'm saying with a pinch of salt. That being said, um, honestly, whilst researching this subject, I found it absolutely fascinating. It was kind of a bit of a, a brush of fresh air, actually, to be looking at something a bit new. I do think, regardless, this section should actually be really interesting, in fact. After that, I shall simply do what I normally do. I shall review the film and then rate it out of 10. But before all of that, traditions are traditions. And it is time for my dramatic intro. Right. You are a student who is on a research dig in Mexico. Part of this project involves researching a recently discovered Aztec mummy. Unlike everyone else there, you do not really care about history. But there is a gal on the dig you quite like. And as such, you wait until no one is around and steal a bracelet from the mummy in order to give it to her. However, little do you know that you have just set off a chain of events that will eventually lead to your demise. Little do you know that you have just awoken an ancient evil and will soon hear the scream of the mummy. So the very first thing you really see in this film is the actual mummy itself. And it's instantly quite noticeable that it's more sort of modeled after an Egyptian mummy than an Aztec one. So, for instance, it's wrapped in bandages. It's laying on its back with its hands over its chest. You know, the, the very typical type of Egyptian mummy that everyone thinks about when they, when they think of an Egyptian mummy. In fact, interestingly, and admittedly to the, the film's credit, because one of the characters, uh, Stacy, does acknowledge this. The Aztecs didn't really practice mummification. Generally, if a body survived in a kind of mummified state in that area of the world, it was more by accident, really. You know, it just happened to have been in the right conditions. And even when these bodies are found, they're not normally lying on their back. Normally, they're in a, a sort of sitting position, and they've been kept there by having sort of rope or um, cloth tied around them. In fact, for the majority of people in Aztec culture, they were actually cremated rather than buried. Though there are exceptions to this. So, for instance, if a woman died in childbirth or a person drowned or got struck by lightning. So basically, um, if it looked like the gods had taken them out of the, that, this world or sort of selected them, then they, they would be buried. So, for instance, for someone who had drowned, it was believed they'd been dragged down to an earthly paradise by Talalok. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'm I am trying with these names, but they are not easy to say. <laughs> um, but basically, Talalok was a, a he was the water god slash kind of like fertility god. In this case, the person would be buried on the shore of a lake in the kind of a small temple that was uh, decorated by weeds. Slightly later in this same scene, the professor claims that the Aztecs did not believe in an afterlife and instead believed people went to Mictlan, so kind of the Aztec hell, where they would be destroyed by the Lord of the Dead. So, in fairness, it was believed that the majority of people in the Aztec culture would go to Mictlan, so this was basically supposed to be a location beneath the earth 
that was basically shrouded in darkness. It wasn't supposed to be a very nice place. So comparing it to hell, I, I, I think that's fair enough. But on the other hand, they weren't torn apart by the Lord of Darkness. Instead, they would just stay there indefinitely. That was where they were now. Kind of a horrible fate for the majority of your civilization, to be honest. But by the same token, that didn't mean there wasn't like a, a nice afterlife as well. There were some people who got there, though admittedly they were few and far between. So for men, basically the only real ways you could get there were if you died in battle as a warrior or if you were sacrificed. In this case, you would go and join the sun as he travels from the earth up until high noon. You basically help the sun reach its most powerful point in the sky. On the other hand, if you were a woman, well, first of all, you could also die in battle. It was just a lot less likely. But you could also get to this paradise by dying in childbirth. And in fact, childbirth was often sort of almost portrayed as a, as a battle of types. You know, the woman was struggling to give birth to the, the baby. So very often a woman would also be likened to a warrior if she died in this way. However, for women, where men helped the sun reach its apex in the sky, women would instead help the sun from that apex back down to the horizon where they would pass it off to the people in Mictalan. And then it was kind of the, the sun's job to make it through this dark, perilous location so they could rise again in the morning. So in a weird way... Although I definitely don't think there's any link at all between Egyptian and Aztec religion, I think, you know, the, the similarities are entirely coincidental. There are similarities between the ways the Egyptians and the Aztecs saw the, the journey of the sun, I suppose. You know, there was an emphasis put on the, the sun's journey around the world, basically. When it comes to the Aztecs, however... Really interestingly, the people that go up to this paradise in the sky, they only stay there for four years, and then they return to the Earth. And I will admit, <laughs> boy, do men and women have a different fate at this point. So men, they will, go to, they will go back to Earth, where they will become hummingbirds and butterflies. They will then dance in the sunlight and drink nectar for the rest of their lives. They will drink nectar and dance in the sunlight for eternity. They have reached paradise, basically. They have reached a happy end. So what do you think happens to women? Do you think they reach this similar kind of paradise? Um, nah. So women instead, they become divine goddesses. Sounds quite nice, right? You're probably thinking. They become what are known as the Siwatateo. They become these goddesses that are doomed to torment humanity haunting the crossroads on five ceremonial days of misfortune. They would bring suffering and affliction to all that passed them. They would cause deformities to children and cause orphanhood. But their journey of terror would not end there, for after this, from the remnants of the Stimatateo, would come the Zitzimi. And these were creatures with skeletal faces and clawed hands and feet. Worse still, they would wear necklaces of hands and hearts. The Zitzimi would descend to the earth to devour humanity in times of threatening darkness and at the end of the fifth age of the earth. Well, okay then. <laughs> I mean, could there possibly be a more different fate for men and women? That's like an insane difference. <laughs> 
I'm going to leave my discussion on this here, but I, I do have a feeling it's going to come up again in later episodes. Like, this is an area I, I have to study more on. How could I not want to know more about this? But anyway, moving on to a point that's probably a little bit more mundane. But then again, how could it not be after that? Um, so they have the mummy in this film right next to a massive window. This is not how you would store a, a mummy or anything that's kind of, I suppose, perishable. So anything that's, say, like bone or wood or textile based. Uh, basically, uh, the rays of the sun, so UV light, can can damage bone and textiles. So you just wouldn't you wouldn't put it in this location. I get why they've done it because it's quite clear they wanted the lightning to be seen through the window and stuff. So dramatically, yeah, it makes sense. But realistically, if you were to store any artifact by a window, it would have to be something like stone, because that doesn't get as affected by by sun. You know, hence things like Stonehenge and the pyramids have lasted a really long time, where uh, more perishable things like wood hasn't, and only tends to survive in very specific circumstances. The final point I want to talk about here is um, there's one part where one of the characters named Don, who's, I suppose he's one of the sort of like main, main characters, he claims that the Aztecs played football with human heads. What he's referring to here is a very famous ball game that was played in Mesoamerica. It was quite widespread and it had multiple different names, but it was normally played on a, a field which was called a Tlachtli. I Again, apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. <laughs> in terms of the Aztec society, this game was used both for recreation, but it also had quite a lot of like religious significance as well. This is largely because it was linked to the sun god, Haitzilupachli, and his battle against the nocturnal celestial bodies, so darkness and death. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where we were talking about the um, the sun going around the earth and having to pass through uh, Michelin, you know, the, um, the Aztec hell. In fact, um, the movement of the ball over the pitch was supposed to even symbolise the sun's journey. Just before I continue, I feel I should probably talk a little bit about the, the actual rules for the game. Again, they are quite wide and varied, so this will only be a, a, a sort of vague description. But typically, the game is played in kind of like a, a capital I-shaped arena between two teams. There are varieties, but usually it is a case of the ball had to be kept in the air, and the only areas of the body that were really allowed to be used were the sort of hips, elbows, and knees. Um, at each end of the court, there was a, a hoop, and... There were several ways you could get points. One was to get the ball through the hoop, but this was normally really hard. Firstly, well, obviously, because you're using your hips, elbows and knees, but also because the, the hole is tiny. The other way would be to say, like, get the ball to fall on the ground on the, the opponent's side of the court. Again, there are a variety of different ways on and rules around this game, but they're the kind of very basic ones. And when it came to uh, the sort of Aztec culture, the ball was actually so heavy that it could cause some serious injuries and even death. So let's say it whacks you in the face, it could easily kill you. Uh, if you're whacking it, say, on your ribs, it could cause massive bruising and things like that. So we are talking about a really brutal game here. But more to the point, when we're talking about what, what Don is saying here, about like using a human head as um, a ball... Well, this, this theory comes from the fact that um, games were often played during festivals after a sacrifice. 
So you'd have the kind of typical sort of like, you know, Aztec pyramid temple thing. Uh, there would be a sacrifice on top of there. And then the bull court was normally at the bottom of the, the kind of temple, just by the blood-soaked steps. So in this regard, the bull here didn't just represent the, the sun. It also represented the decapitated head of the person who had been sacrificed. However, again, I do want to stress that there is no direct evidence that the actual head of the person was used. I will admit, again, I've said this a couple of times, but I'm no expert here. To me, it doesn't really make sense that they would use a head, largely because the, the ball here, due to the actual way the game was played, it had to be quite sort of bouncy. I'm going to guess a human head isn't going to be bouncy enough for this game. Again, I could be wrong. I don't know. But my instinct here tells me they never used heads um, of the actual, like, sacrifice. That being said, that didn't mean there weren't absolutely brutal parts to this game. I've already discussed how someone could die from the ball just hitting them in the head and all of the bruises and probably permanent injuries people would get from this game. But also, it wasn't uncommon for the losing team in these to be executed in the middle of the court. And on top of that, although the decapitated head of the sacrifice wasn't necessarily used, the pitch was marked out by skulls um, along the centre line, so there was still death all around you. So I'm going to leave my discussion on the historical accuracy here. It seems quite clear that some little bits from history have been cherry-picked for this film. So, for instance, uh, they get the names of some of the gods correct. They talk about Michelin, the, the um, Aztec hell. One of the characters acknowledges that the Aztecs didn't really practice mummification. But by the same token, you know, this film is hardly accurate. It's not trying to be. Um, One thing I will say, and it's something I might start doing for the Egyptian ones as well, the thing I noticed uh, during the making of this episode and during the research was that a lot of the words, if someone had just spoken them to me, I don't think I'd even been able to hazard a guess of how to spell them. So I'm going to list some of these in the episode description and just kind of put a little description of what they are as well. My main reason for wanting to do this is just to help anyone who wants to do a little bit more research into them. And well, obviously when it comes to ancient Egypt, I'm very keen for everyone to do a bit more research, but... Honestly, I, I found studying this episode fascinating. The Aztec culture is so vastly different to the Egyptian one. It was so interesting. So I do urge people to just, you know, even if it's just to prod around on Google, have a little look. Anyway, I'm going to leave the discussion on the historical accuracy there. On to the review section. Okay, so as just said, we've now arrived at the uh, review section. So here I'm just going to talk about what I liked in the film, what I disliked, and I'm also going to have a section on the parts that I, I sort of found funny. So, you know, the parts that are technically bad, but I kind of found a bit charming. And then once all that's done, I'm just going to rate the film out of 10. So to begin with, I will say there's one character who, who ends up sort of, I say spoiler, I don't think anyone's really going to care with this film, there's a character called Norman who who basically ends up being the main villain of the film. He is an Aztec high priest who is raising the mummy from the dead in order to fulfil a prophecy about the end times. All very dramatic, of course. But I will say, at the very beginning of the film, uh, it's kind of hard to know whether Norman is going to be the good or bad guy. 
he is quite creepy, but it's more in a kind of like nerdy and unsocially aware way. So it's in a quite an understandable way that would have been it would have been easy to make him a character to root for, I feel. So I kind of like that you you were sort of guessing which way he was gonna go. When it comes to the actual mummy itself, I will admit I did find it quite funny that they had quite a kind of stout man playing the part, so it looked very unrealistic. But I did think that the the mummy's weapon looked really cool. It has this kind of curved Aztec blade. There's not really much more to say about it than that, but, you know, the blade looked cool, and I suppose that is a positive for the film. You might be able to tell I I am struggling to find positives here. (laughs) Um, There are, in fairness, there are a couple of bits that I did think were legitimately good. So, for instance, when the mummy kills the professor, who's his, who's the mummy's first victim, Norman gets the mummy to take the body to where it had previously been lying, and they put a sheet over the body just to make it look like the body of the mummy is still where it should be. Although this was, you know, a smart move, it did lead to a few parts that, admittedly, if they'd been done better, could have led to some tense points. At the very least, I thought this was a fun idea. The final positive I'm going to give this film, and I will admit, it's probably the biggest one I can give as well. At the end of this film, I was not bored. I was still interested in what was happening, and even if this wasn't necessarily for the right reasons, it's fair to say that there's even been quite a few big blockbusters out there that I've been bored at when I've got to the end of the film, even some that have got very good reviews, so I don't think this can be understated necessarily. Anyway, onto the parts of this film that I kind of found funny, but for the wrong reasons. So, for a start, there's one character who's called Morris, who... He's basically the epitome of everything that's bad in humanity. Um, He's very much a womaniser. He doesn't care at all about the project he's doing. He's, He's a bully. And there's this one bit where, basically, there's no one around. So he steals a an amulet from the mummy... And gives it to Janine, who he he basically has a crush on. It's really noticeable that throughout the course of the film, pretty much everyone finds out he's stolen this amulet. And they're all just kind of like, oh, well, you probably shouldn't have done that. And when it comes to Janine, she's even like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But it is quite sweet. And then she just goes on a date with him. I'm sorry, but like, if I was on a dig and I found out someone had stolen from one of the bodies... They would not be working on that dig much longer. The first thing I would do would be to tell the person in charge of the excavation. This next point is, I feel going to be a surprise to absolutely nobody, but both the script and the acting in this film are both terrible, like really bad. But I will say, when it comes to bad acting, I think there's sort of two types. You get the type where it's just a little bit bad, and at that point, it's usually quite annoying and it's, it's not good. But when it gets to this level of bad, I think it it does come back on itself and it's just sort of charming. Like, you know, at that point, you know you're not watching a good film, so you may as well just kind of enjoy it. And when it does come to the script, like, I I do find it hysterical that the writers clearly didn't know anything about subtlety whatsoever. So, for instance, near the beginning of the film, we've got one character who's called Stacy. And she really makes a point of saying that she's a virgin. Like, you know, like it's it's very much shoehorned into the to a conversation and it becomes instantly apparent that this is going to be a plot point. I actually wrote in my notes at this point, 
oh, so the mummy's going to need a virgin for a sacrifice later on. Like, it was ridiculously obvious. And then later, when they do find out that the mummy <laughs> does indeed need a virgin to bring about the end times, Stacy once again just has to reiterate that she's a practicing virgin in a very shoehorned-in way. Like, she literally just goes, well, as a practicing virgin, this prophecy would make me terrified. And he's just like, I'm sorry, but like, are these writers determined to make sure you know exactly what's going to be happening for the next five scenes? Like, it feels like they do everything in their power to make sure there are no surprises at all throughout the entirety of the film. I also just enjoyed the, the weather in this film as well. So, throughout most of the film, there's this big storm going on. There's thunder and lightning everywhere. However, there's absolutely no rain or wind. It's quite clear they've done it this way because they don't want to mess up the, the actor's hair and makeup. But at the same time, you do kind of think if those elements had also been there, it would have probably, you know, added to the drama in the film somewhat. But instead, it just makes the whole thing look incredibly cheap. Admittedly, in a charming way, though. Also, like, going back to the script sort of a little bit, there's one character called Orlando, and he's basically wandering around a house towards the end of the film. He's talking to himself, very cliched lines. And then he basically just turns around, looks out the window and goes, and it looks like a storm's about to arrive as well. He's literally been storming the entire film. What on earth is he talking about? Weirdly, though... I kind of loved this because I only spotted this on the second watch through. You know, it kind of almost gave me an anti, I don't know, like Fight Club vibe. You know, you watch Fight Club the first time and, you know, your mind is blown at one particular point in the film. I'm not going to say what because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen that film. But then the next time you watch it, you know, you're seeing all these things and you're seeing the, the, the parts that led up to that. And it's awesome because you, you get a different experience watching it the second time round. This film also has that, but for the wrong reasons. And I kind of love it for that. Where in Fight Club, you see how well designed the film was. You see all of the thought and detail that went into it. In this one, you just see another level of ineptitude. I also felt that Norman here was the least convincing Aztec high priest I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I'm not going to say I've seen a lot, but... I'm going to guess that Aztec high priests weren't, you know, pasty, nerdy guys, probably from, like, New York or somewhere. Like, I'm not even making fun of, of Norman for being a pasty, nerdy guy. I'm a pasty, nerdy guy. But I also am very aware I'd be a terrible Aztec high priest. <laughs> like, they're literally supposed to be these terrifying figures that usually had dried blood staining their body. If that was me, I'd just be worried that the blood was also drying my skin. It just doesn't sound very hygienic either. I'd have way too many worries. I mean, I literally cried at Sonic the Hedgehog. I don't think I could rip out a human heart. Like, literally. Norman is about as a convincing high priest as I am. On top of that, towards the end of the film, Norman puts on this sort of, like, high priest gown thing. But it, it literally looks like it's come from a costume shop. It, it looks like a cheap Halloween costume. My reaction when I saw this wasn't to go, oh man, that's awesome. It was just to kind of go, nah. Like, off the top of my head, I cannot think of a less convincing villain in any film. 
even Plankton from, from Spongebob is more threatening than this guy. Finally, in terms of the kind of funny parts of this film, the way the mummy gets killed in this one is ridiculously anticlimactic. So bear in mind, this mummy is an undead monster that's been risen so that it can bring about a prophecy for the end times. It just gets stabbed in the stomach and dies. That's it. That, that, that's how they beat it. They, they get its blade and they stab it. It's not even specified that it could only be killed by that blade. Presumably they could have just used anything and... Yeah, that'd be it. Like, honestly, in any other film this would be a terrible ending. It is here as well, don't get me wrong, but... It's so in tone with the rest of the film and... Just how lazy it is that... I, I just found it funny at this point. But anyway... <laughs> Onto the parts that were legitimately bad. So this next part, like, if I'm honest with you, this could have probably fallen into the so bad that it's funny section as well. But a lot of people, when the mummy is approaching them, just sort of stand screaming. So the professor is a good example of that. The mummy walks towards her with a blade as um, Norman's sort of like laughing evilly. And she just stands there going, ah, <laughs> like that. And then the mummy kills her. There's literally no attempt to escape whatsoever. If I'm honest with you, though, the only other, like, outright bad part of this film is that it was admittedly quite slow. Like, the first kill doesn't come until about halfway through the film. And up until that point, they're just sort of, well, I say establishing the characters. All they're really doing is showing that Norman's a bit nerdy and that Morris is a bit of an arsehole, to be honest. And then that's it. So... Basically, I could get past this because I was finding the acting so bad that it was weirdly charming. But realistically, 99% of the people who watch this film will not get to the first kill. I reckon they'd have given up by that point. So that is a legitimate bad part of this film. In terms of my rating for this, first of all, I'll just say I'm not going to be looking over um, any of the scores on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. My apologies if that disappoints anyone, but I've just found recently that I've been focusing a little bit too much on reviews and what other people think of films. And I don't just mean that for the podcast, I mean in my personal life as well. I've noticed that I tend to uh, look at reviews and then I'm looking for the things the reviews are talking about rather than actually just sitting down and enjoying the film. I don't think it's a particularly healthy way of like enjoying something, basically. So instead, I'm just going to say whether I actually enjoy a film and give my own rating instead. Um, for this one, there's no denying this is not a good film. It, it is really bad. So the real question here, is this just bad? Or is it so bad that it's good? Does it come back on itself and become good again? In my opinion, this one does. It doesn't to the same like amount as, say, like The Room or... Um, Troll 2 or Plan 9 from Outer Space, they are better examples of so bad that it's good. But this one was still entertaining nonetheless. So when it comes to so bad that it's good, I've often said that the highest it can achieve is a 6 out of 10. Anything higher than that is reserved for films that are good for the reason they are made. If I'm honest, I would probably give this one a 4 out of 10, but it's, it's a weirdly entertaining 4 out of 10. I think for the majority of people... This film would be pretty unbearable, but for a select few, I think there is some enjoyment to be had here. So, if you like bad acting, 
if you like a bad script, if you like an unconvincing mummy, if you like an unconvincing villain, <laughs> and if you've got nothing else to watch and you want a bit of a laugh, maybe give this one a go. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please do like, subscribe, leave a comment. And join me next week, where once again I shall be joined by guest Jake Fleming, who last appeared on the episode for Troll 2. And this time we shall be looking at what's considered one of the worst films ever made, Manos, The Hands of Fate. I promise I do also look at good films on this podcast. (laughs) Um, But either way... I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.